Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. And uh, welcome to another episode of our podcast called The Edge. Today, we're very happy to say that we've got Mr. Phil Abraham on our podcast. It's it's somebody that I've been wanting to speak to for quite a while. So we're really glad that Phil's here. Um, so thank you, Phil, for joining us. Um, the, the first question I'm going to ask you is pretty much the same as I ask everyone that comes on our podcast. Kind of give us a little bit of background to yourself. Like, how did you get in the industry? What's your journey been? And kind of how did you get to where you are today? Oh, okay. And thank you for having me on the show. Um, so uh, the I've had a long career. You know, I'm older than you guys. Uh, the uh, which, and, which is hard to imagine at times sometimes. Yeah. The, uh, but, um, you know, I've had a, a wild run. Absolutely wild run, that's for sure. And uh, the thing about me is I was, as a young person, I really knew exactly how I wanted my life to go. And nothing worked out the way I wanted it to work out. You know, usually like some of your life works out the way you want it to work out. Um, or if you're lucky, your life works out perfectly. None of my life worked out at all. So... Uh, you know, for example, I thought I, you know, grew up in like, a, you know, lower class, lower middle class neighborhood and nothing fancy. You know, your parents told you to work every day, go to school at night. You know, things are relatively simple. And I immediately uh, later in life realized I'm at my core an incredible inventor. But going back as a young man, <clears throat> I thought I was just a regular guy whose parents said work hard. So I my first job was at Kmart Corporation when it was a the number one retailer in the world. So this was before Google, Google and Amazon and all the cool stuff. Kmart was kind of like the Google of the world because it was the largest retailer. And they were innovating everything. Matter of fact, there's things that I was doing at Kmart that still aren't even being done yet by Amazon or at Walmart or anyone. So um, it was cool. And I was going to school at night and my parents were telling me, hey, you're doing a good job. And, uh, you know, I never missed work. One of those kind of guys. And then um, I got this opportunity, a job opened up at Kmart and I was out in the warehouse unloading trucks and this is in the office and it was a job where most people got fired or sent back out to the warehouse <clears throat> it was very hard and it has to do with something that's not very sexy it's called the routing and batching so picture you know 3,000 Kmart stores doing incredible volume Okay, uh, kind of like you know Amazon during Christmas time with all these packages going everywhere, um, big four million square foot distribution centers. It's just a phenomenal thing, creature. Well, somebody has to route and batch. So let's just say you were a manager of one Kmart store. Well, every night you had to get on the phone and call in your orders. So you got three thousand stores. And within a big box Kmart store, there's all those different departments, roughly 150,000 SKUs. 
So kind of one way or another, you got to call in for 150,000 items, you know, six of these, four of those, 10 of that. And then every store in the world was calling those in. And within those orders, people have to understand a uh, barbecue grill comes in a big box, but maybe boat anchors come in little boxes because they're dense and heavy, right? So you not only have all these numbers of boxes coming at you, you have cubic feet and weight tonnage, and then you have geographical location and cost, and then complicating matters even more, there was no computer. So you had to use pencil and paper and a little calculator. And you'd had to route and batch this in a way that three, 4,000 workers out in the warehouse would be able to take all these orders coming down these assembly lines and end up loading them into a truck in a store stop sequence and not overflow the truck. So one store manager might order 4,000 cubic feet of stuff, but a truck holds 2,000 cubic feet. And it doesn't even work that nice. You know, one store orders 557 cubic feet, another one orders 1,700. And then you have to try to match stores up, but geographically, like you wouldn't want to put a store in Detroit on the same truck as a store in England. You know, so, and you wouldn't even want to put a store in Detroit on a store in a, Cleveland, Ohio, they got to be real close to each other, a lot going on. So all of this math and strategy and everything had to be done in just a few hours because then they had to start printing millions of these barcoded labels, get them out to the warehouse. They had to pick these things, you know, the whole system, right? So, and then if you make a mistake, you put the wrong cubic feet or the wrong store, the whole building wants to assassinate you. So it's like the nerve center. So one day I was doing it, I got really good. So all the other routing batches in the country could get it done in about eight hours. I would get mine done in about two hours, which was a big deal and without any mistakes. But every day you always thought, you know, I make one mistake, I'm fired. And uh, so one day I came up with this idea and this is where that article from the rafters to the cloud. And that stems from I ran away from home in sixth grade and I lived in my friend's garage. And later in life, I got deep into the clouds so from the rafters to the cloud. So I had this idea. Now, remember, you know, I actually created the largest migration of the cloud and people don't talk about. It. So this is before Steve Jobs, before Bill Gates, before Jeff Bezos, before any of that stuff. I show up and I move the Kmart Corporation to the cloud. That would be like saying today, I'm going to move Walmart to the cloud, right? If there wasn't a cloud yet. So, so I had this idea to make the routing and batching disappear. Now think about how crazy that is because there was no internet or no cloud yet. There was kind of, but not really. And there was none of, there's, you know, everyone still had desktop computers or no computer at all. And actually people had in and out baskets for those in your audience are as old as me, right? I remember those. Yeah, these people would be at their desks and everybody <laughs> had an in and out basket, you know? And that's what I grew up with. You know, you'd be organized, you have an in and out basket. And so I said, you know, I'm going to take this insane process and make it disappear. 
everything. And so I did. And um, so with one push the button, so in a matter of a, one second, I eliminated that whole process. So I'm over there thinking, look how cool I am, right? Well, boy, did I get an uh, ass beating. And I got an Alabama beatdown on that one, <clears throat> which I could never understand. By the way, I realize that nowadays you could be potentially classified as a terrorist, you know, but back then nobody knew anything. You know, it's basically a stone age. And so <clears throat> I'm sitting there, you did this rounding batch on the afternoon shift and the chairman of the board, and this is a big guy, it's be like the chairman of the board of General Motors calling here or something. And this guy is about ready to split in half and, and throw me into the dumpster. And he says, Phil, he's trying to stay calm. He says, uh, Phil, are you aware that we're a publicly traded company? And I kind of was, but I didn't really understand that stuff. And he said, um, do you realize that there's people in um, Wall Street and that right now calling us? And I said, no, why would they be calling you? He says, well, you know, we can't find anything. We can't find our sales, our sales receipts. We can't find, you know, the cash on hand. We can't find, you know, Phil, the store orders. And we're a publicly traded company. And everybody wants to know what our orders were like. But we don't know. And we don't know how we're going to ship product tomorrow. Because we don't know where anything is. Meanwhile, my big boss that's higher but below the chairman, he was at home. The front guard check guy calls me. He says, Mr. Abraham, uh, Mr. So-and-so's here. And he looks mad. So he comes in. Basically, I basically got a beat down. And he says, Phil, I got 40 years of this company. I've never been yelled at once. And I got the chairman of the board on me. He says, what the hell did you do? Where is everything? So I said, oh, don't worry. I made the company infinitely better. And it's going to be so efficient. You can't believe it. And I tried to explain it to him. And everything's, these algorithms, algorithms did automatic cube splitting. So I told him if the store orders 4,000 cubic feet, the system will know to cut it at 2,000. They'll pull that truck out, put another one in, do the other 2,000. And it'll, it'll do the math and the financials. It'll tell you. Everything you want to know, all with one click of the button. It's phenomenal. And uh, so uh, after they got done, you know, they made me promise I would never do that again. I said, okay. So I had done like 30% of the company. So I said, okay. I went back to my desk. I called the IT department and I said, could you send over by chance every store in the whole system for me? And they said, sure. So then I went and did the whole system two weeks after they told me never to do it again. And I don't even know what the hell I was thinking. So I, uh, and I'm a good person, but I went back in there. I did the whole United States in our international locations. Very complicated stuff. Railroad freight, ocean going freight, air freight, truck freight, you know, it's a big deal. And uh, made it all disappear. Um, I thought the world was going to end after that, but uh, I ended up getting promoted and uh, I got a, a $50 gift certificate, which would be maybe like $1,000 today. And I got this plaque and I got promoted to this world-class uh, 
distribution center and uh the so that's behind me i go down to this new center and i get a different boss there and this guy was real strict younger than my old boss a little more savvy this guy had an education a degree my old boss didn't and uh he was tough, but he said, Phil, I'm going to give you the freedom to create. So I started to do stuff that's mind-boggling down there. I started to do, um, you know, they measure people and, you know, cost per hundred way. You know, what are your costs per hundred way? I achieved zero cost per hundred way. I was, uh, I started a trucking company, which I wasn't allowed to do. They, they told me, came our headquarters. I said, I'm going to start this trucking company. We had private fleet trucks that would take freight from the center to the stores that come back empty. Well, I went and created a trucking company and I started hauling freight for everybody, General Motors, Walmart, everybody. I was making so much money. It was insane. And uh, so then I got in trouble for that, but they liked the money coming in. You know, a lot of profit hides a lot of sins. And then I invented what then that's today the rage. I'm actually the founder of something called complexity science, which is the ability to predict, you know, six months, 12 months out before an event is even, you know, is happening with north of 90% accuracy. So going back to then, I was letting my particular boss know exactly what a customer is going to buy in a store six months from now. So we could plan everything we needed to plan. That's complexity science. And um, then I guess they got sick of me. So Kmart sent me to Walmart. <laughs> and so I would go to Walmart with my Kmart badge. I mean, this is insane. And uh, and they put me in a room and my instructions were to teach them everything that I was doing at Kmart. So really the re-engineering of that world-class Walmart supply chain was when I pivoted over there. But that's just the beginning, you know? So I always thought for sure I was a supply chain guy that was really good at supply chain, which I am, you know? And then I, a guy walked in my room, my office in a suit. And he said, hi, Phil, I'm here for, on behalf of Mr. Monahan, who founded Domino's Pizza. He says, you're now working for us. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, you're working for us. I said, no, I work for Kmart. And he said, no, you're working for us. Long story, longer, less interesting. Now I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Domino's headquarters with stores in 80 countries around the world and doing supply chain stuff. And one day my boss calls me and says, Phil, are you in any trouble? And I said, no, why? He says, well, Tom Monahan wants to see you. And he was like the God man over there. <clears throat> and I go, okay. So I go in there and Mr. Monahan says, I'm going to put you on a secret project. He says, I'm going to sell the company. And the bankers are telling me I can get a billion dollars, which was a lot of money then, 10 years ago or so, um, for the company. Uh, but we need to do a few things here. So I'm going to give you this assignment. I want you to take a year and go look at all software that's ever been created. And I said, well, I'm a supply chain guy. He says, well, and I left this out. That invention for Kmart, when I got promoted, Somebody at Kmart gave my invention to someone and they renamed it 
uh, Manugistics. And it's to this day, 40 years later, it's the number one supply chain software in the world. 90% of the world's food and retailers use Manugistics, regardless of the name. And that was my invention from 40 years ago. And I got a gift certificate out of it. And um, so anyways, uh, so Monian has me look at all these software systems. He says, you know, we need to implement a global ERP tool. And this is when ERP was just starting to get sexy. Oracle, SAP, and all this stuff. So I looked at thousands and thousands of software systems, and I came back to Mr. Monahan. I said, I got good news and bad news for you. Guy had a really bad temper, former Marine, you know, and he said, okay, what's the bad news? I said, well, I looked at every software, like you said, and I concluded they're all bad. And he starts screaming at me because he wants his billion dollars, right? He says, I said, they're all bad. He says, what do you mean they're all bad? Well, I looked at them all and they don't really do what they say they can do. And it's going to cause you a lot of problems. And he's pounding his fist, screaming at me. I go, I knew you were going to get upset. So I made a little short list of four out of you know 10,000. And you could pick any one of these four and that'll get you over the goal line. But I don't really want to approve them. But if you want to approve them, you'll get your billion dollars. So off they went to do their thing. So I call up my advisor in grad school. And I said, I said to my advisor, Dr. Westrom, I said, I want to go to grad school. So he was my advisor from undergrad. And I said, I want to go to grad school. He says, okay, so you need your thesis uh, approved. What do you want to do your thesis on? I said, well, I want to do my software on running companies without software, eliminating IT departments and making complex corporations disappear. And he says, that's not a very good thesis statement, but you're a good kid and everything. I'll give you a good grade, but nobody really likes that. And I said, oh, no, I assure you, people are going to be hacking. There's going to be problems. There's going to be cyber issues. Oh, boy. And this is you know 20 years ago. So nobody even got hacked 20 years ago. And uh, so I went to grad school. And the first semester, the vice chairman, the second highest guy for General Motors, sends a letter to my house, says, we need to talk to you. So he calls me into his office. He says, Phil, we want you to look at every process, practice, and procedure in the world for General Motors. And we want you to make us disappear, the guy says to me. And I go, wow. It was intimidating, though, I can tell you that much. Because I was at the beginning of grad school. I had this great idea. I think I know. I mean, I pretty much knew where I was going, but I still was a little green, you know. And now I got General Motors going, take your thesis and implement it here. And I'm, I go, okay. But I didn't really work through my whole thesis yet. So now I'm doing all this clever stuff for General Motors. And uh, on the heels of Walmart, Domino's, Kmart, you know. Still thinking I'm a supply chain rum dumb, you know, and I get a, pulled into the United States uh, whole healthcare system, which is 35% of the whole U.S. economy. So the CEO of the largest Catholic healthcare system in America calls me in and says, Phil, I want you to do some things. I want you to look at every process, practice, and procedure for this whole big Catholic healthcare system which is a third of the whole healthcare system. And I said, really? And he says, yeah, and look at the supply chain, everything else too. I thought, okay. 
this is cool. And he says, by the way, I also want you to look at every single software that everyone uses in the healthcare system. And I don't care if it's the Medicaid, Medicare, Cardinal Health, McKesson, the pharmaceutical companies, every department inside the hospital, whether it's finance, cardiology, orthopedics, the entire supply, document everything. So I go, okay. So I'm documenting this stuff and I'm looking at everything and it's at a, at a macro level. Then I start looking at were they implemented properly or were they integrated amongst themselves properly? And I sit there horrified and I realize it's the biggest fraud in the, in the world, in the history of mankind. It's the U.S. healthcare system. You know, the doctors are phenomenal and the nurses are phenomenal. But the rest of that thing is a big, giant goat rodeo. OK. And so <clears throat> I look at all this stuff and I, I conclude to this day, I know everything. I know exactly where everything's being moved, money, this, that, you got it. So I'm armed with all this knowledge. I get called out to a hospital on the West Coast, California, in uh, <laughs> uh, Loma Linda University Medical Center, which is a blue zone. There's only four blue zones in the world. One's in Japan, Greece, Italy, and then Loma Linda University. And that's where the scientists say, for some reason, if you live in one of these four cities, you'll be as healthy as you could ever possibly be. And you'll be doing pull-ups at 100 years old and all this stuff. And so now I'm at Loma Linda and there they give me, uh, they say, Phil, we're going to support you. You can do whatever you want, you know, have at it. So they give me every single department and a lot of things happen there. For example, as everyone knows, healthcare pricing never goes down. That's because they can never drive any cost out that has a meaning to it. And so they, the best supply chain guys out there can't even drive 1% of their total healthcare costs out. Well, we drove 20% out at the low end and 80% on the high end, which is insane. And that's because when I cataloged all that software for the Catholic system, and Loma Linda happens to be at Venice, I knew where all the sins were. And so then I not only did these phenomenal things, I also, and this is all referenced, um, I found a way, and the only way really ever documented, I actually improved patient outcomes without touching doctor, nurse, and patient. People don't even understand. This is the craziest words coming out of my mouth, but it's all papered up and referenceable. And, and so under the disguise of a supply chain project, I drove all this cost down by improved patient outcomes, and then that improves reimbursements. It's a phenomenal thing. Really, it is. Uh, and then... In that process, though, I at this point in my life, I learned so much stuff that I became an expert in uh, cybersecurity like you would never, ever imagine. I mean, to this day, um, I really am ahead of the curve on this stuff and, um, the, uh, and created the first ever only uh, quantum encrypted blockchain, actually, a real one. I'm not talking about fluff fluff. I'm talking about... You know, it's the best blockchain for sure. And then I took the best quantum encryption. And when I say the best quantum encryption, you know, everyone's talking about quantum this and quantum that, hither, tither, hither and poo, okay? But the mathematician that controls the algorithm on the quantum half of that, he's so papered up with white papers and credentials and, you know, it's, he's as solid in math. He's one of the top three mathematicians in the world 
in set theory. And set theory is the math he used uh, as the floor for cryptology. And so he has solved and created polymorphic random number generator, polyRNG. So where everyone else and all these other cyber people, which is, hello, why is everyone being hacked every day? Why is the government being hacked? Why is all branches of the military being hacked? Kmart, you know, the airlines were just hacked. You know, everybody's hacked. Well, they use random number generators, okay? And just as a short on that, um, you know, patterns develop in strings of random number generators and hackers have tools to get into those patterns. Well, in polymorphic random number generator, the string of numbers could single the, uh, circle the earth a billion times and there'll never be a pattern. And then he also solved for camouflage, camouflage and compression. Now, some of your audience may or may not have watched this comedy on cable called um, Silicon Valley. It's a funny ass show. Okay, and it's about this guy who has his company called Pied Piper. And the spoof is they solve for compression and all these billionaires are trying to steal the guy's patent. Well, Dr. Al actually, Dr. Al, the mathematician, he actually solved compression. And this camouflage and the poly RNG. And him and I have been friends for about seven years. And so I went to him and I said, Dr. Al, can we put your algorithms in this particular blockchain and first he said no to me i said come on dr l let's you know he says no and i said no come on let's do it you know i said i want to have the uh, only quantum encrypted blockchain in the world long story longer he did it it's done it's the only one and when i say it's real i give you an example uh the gold standard for encryption is AES-256. So most of your cyber listeners will go, oh yeah, I've heard of AES-256. And many companies aren't even at AES-256, but that's the gold standard. Everyone's gonna claw their way up the ladder to get to AES-256. Recently, I've been on a phone call between the CIA and one of their defense uh, providers. And the discussion was, who can create AES-512, okay? So my AES that's rooted in Dr. Ailes and Matt is AES trillions of trillions times 256. So think about that for a minute. The whole world's struggling with AES 256. The whole world's worried sick about being hacked. And remember, all my expertise in looking at all those software systems, the software, the biggest scam in the world, it's all like Swiss cheese. You know, all known software, most of you don't, don't understand this. It's really built on 55-year-old Excel files. So software is built on top of Excel. So no matter how sexy the front end is, it can say, you know, ABC cybersecurity software, or it can say this or that software. But when you go in there and say, like, where does Phil live? It just goes to an Excel file. Or if you say how much product, is on the shelf at Walmart, it goes to an Excel file. Or if you say, who's starting trying to tamper into the company software and cyber, it just goes to these Excel files, okay? And that's the problem with software. So, um, and so it doesn't matter if you get the AES-256, which by the way, another thing most people don't know, AES-256, they've been hacking that for over 30 years. 
So the, your cyber experts will say, well, we're AES-256. Well, that's been hacked for years. Dr. Al was hacking that 25 years ago. So it was well, not, not only that, it's um, well, I, I attended a briefing with uh, somebody who's you know, working with the, the federal government, and they stated that a lot of the hacking is due to the Chinese. They're just grabbing encrypted files because they know at some point with quantum computing, they're going to be able to unencrypt them. And so they're just grabbing data and grabbing data. Even though it's encrypted, they can't get to it yet. But with quantum, they'll be able to uh, eventually. Yeah, well, and that's one of the reasons why they're probably working with you is they're like, hey, we need to upgrade all of our encryption. And they're also pushing industry to do the same, to, to yeah. encrypt Well, that's a very good point. Against that. That's a very good point. And by the way, I know right now I'm having a heck of a time getting the word out on Dr. Ailes' um, creation, his math and all that. But the encryption... This algorithm of his, which I've seen in action, okay, it's so insane. There, it will be, he's got 19 additional patents, okay? So watch this. Even though it's going to probably take 100 years for the best quantum computer, maybe, only maybe, that can crack his algorithm, only maybe, okay? He's got 19 stronger patents on top of that. So, and... One of the there's so many different secrets involved in this, but you know one of the things is the 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 strength of the quantum is its speed. So, for example, what a really smart person could do right now today with a really good laptop, what a particular assignment might take them ten thousand years to solve, a quantum could do in less than ten seconds. So it's not that it's doing incredibly intelligent stuff. It's just doing things quick, like really, really fast. So therefore, since we know all known cyber solutions and all known software already is full, it's like Swiss cheese, <clears throat> that the quantum could tear through that in seconds. By the way, as a side note, people may or may not have read about, you know, here in the States, we have NIST and FIPS certifications for cybersecurity. And NIST announced their newest encryption standards. And look how cool this is. And some young man with a store-bought laptop cracked it and less cracked it in less less than an hour. Okay. And this is supposed to be the world class stuff. So the quantums, which obviously is quicker than a regular young man with a regular laptop, you know, they bought at Walmart or something. Uh, the quantums would just eat that up, okay? Well, one of the little secrets with Dr. Ailes' uh, creation, his math, which I know everything about, uh, is it checks the speed of the quantum. First off, it's incredibly complex. So complex that the math in it, he invented a whole new field of math, and it was accredited and certified by IEEE. So he created a whole new thing of math that they don't even teach at college. So even if you're a real good hacker, you're going to try to unbundle math that no one's ever, only he knows. Okay. And then the second thing is he created his own math symbols. So I remember looking at his algorithm, me and him alone. And I'm looking at these symbols and I'm thinking, I never see anything like that. So I said, hey, Dr. Ale, I, I never seen any symbols like that. He goes, yeah, I invented those. So his symbols in the math 
So for starters, the odds of someone being able to figure that out, they, they, it's impossible. But in addition to that, it checks the speed. It has a secret way to check the speed of the quantum, and it always goes faster. So, so whereas normal software sits there, and it goes one speed, five miles an hour, let's say. And let's say the quantum's coming at it a million miles an hour. Well, that off-the-shelf software's at five miles an hour. Well, that quantum's just going to step all over it. With Dr. Ailes' stuff, with the stuff that I'm talking about, he always goes faster. So if the quantum's coming at a million, he's going a million and five. If it speeds up to a million five, he'll go a million twenty-five. And so it's never going to catch him. And then even if it did catch him, it would have to figure out these mathematics. And there's um, a whole different uh, aspect of uh, things there. So, um, so we put that into the blockchain and um, I'm quietly immersing that into all kinds of companies. Anyone will listen to me. I'm trying to get the word out there, you know, why don't you use this stuff? And it's so easy to implement. He just basically sends an SDK over. He sends an email over and there you have it. You upload it into your infrastructure, your architecture, and you're done. You got the best system in the world. You don't have to bring IBM in for five years and be fleeced and this and that. You would just send it over, you implement it, and there you go. You're as solid as you ever want to be. And um, it's easy to use and it speeds the network up. All other systems, when you bring on this outside software, bring it in, it starts to bog down the architecture and the networks and stuff. This one speeds it up. It's incredible. And then the AES again is trillions of trillions times AES-256. It's actually 12 to the 1495th power. No, 10 to the almost 1500th power times 12. It's a really big number, okay? So when you do that, when you do that, it turns out to be trillions of trillions times AES-256. It's incredible numbers incredible strength so you know so now i'm taking all that stuff my latest invention is i'm taking everything i know and uh i'm involved in five different startups and i'm taking all this crazy cyber stuff and we're going to tackle everything from identity to uh esg the whole carbon environment stuff to trying to vaporize supply chains and um you know, do some phenomenal stuff and, you know, maybe throw it all on the quantum blockchain. And, you know, it's just a whole new world for me now. So I'm really the same guy I was 40 years ago. It's just that I gained knowledge along the way. Yeah, can, we, can we back up and talk a little bit about blockchain? I mean, a lot of yeah. laymen, you know, out there look at blockchain, they're like a eh, crypto cryptocurrency. Um, but it is a fundamental element of, of Web 3.0. Can you kind of give us an idea of, you know, from a layman's perspective, blockchain and uh, really how it will um, change uh, cybersecurity? Yeah, you know what, that, first off, that is probably the best question that's been thrown at me as it relates to blockchain ever. Because there's a little, some secrets in there, what you just threw over the wall to me. So um, the, you know, it's really amazing because I was an anti-blockchain guy. I'm still kind of anti-blockchain. And actually, secretly, I'm trying to work on a way to make blockchain obsolete, to be honest with you. But I won't get into that on this particular call. But so, you know, it always bothered me that the blockchains, uh, 
you know, they didn't, they still to this day aren't getting any traction. They're all over the place. Everyone's talking about it. It's just like, oh my gosh, everything's blockchain. But you really be hard pressed to find a very successful blockchain implementation that works and brings value and drives cost out and this, that, whatever. So, but I'm tied to some projects in this one blockchain. I have signed off as the best blockchain. So I actually found the best blockchain. So I'm an anti-blockchain guy, but I found the best blockchain. And this particular blockchain, it has five of the best patents. That's the only way they hooked me to bring me in. Because I told them, no, I'm anti-blockchain. But they have five patents that are incredible. And, uh, you know, they have a patent on interoperability. So they can they can connect to any disparate system in uh, less than 10 minutes and less than three less than three clicks in 10 minutes. And so I'm over there. I have cataloged, you know, every software in the world, basically. And they have this one tool that when coupled with what I know, three clicks in less than 10 minutes, I can grab any one system I want out of a pile of 500,000 systems. And then uh, they have a patent, uh, you know, on, uh, op, you know, interoperability and patents on that gives them incredible line of sight. They've been, never been down since 2014, not even for one second. Uh, they have unlimited scalability. They're faster than everyone else. And so then people say, well, why aren't a lot of people using them? Well, we do have a couple of projects in the works that a lot of people will be hearing about this chain. But one of the reasons people struggle with the blockchain, uh, the, and I'll talk about some cyber stuff too, but with blockchain, but we really need to catch up on the front end. People need to create apps or other tools that are sexy and cool that do good things for a company. And then that app will sit and interact with the blockchain. So when you just have a blockchain itself, people don't know what to do with it. So you need cool tools that do stuff that are tied to the chain. And then blockchains will start getting some traction. So now on cybersecurity, the question becomes, uh, are blockchains secure? Now, this one particular blockchain, it has five different levels of security and um and it also has all this Dr. Ailes math and quantum and all that stuff in it. So this particular blockchain is basically insane. But other blockchains, I think, are going to struggle with security. I know right now people think that blockchains can't really be hacked. But there really is uh, some weaknesses in most of the blockchains that are going to cause problems uh, for companies. Uh, and especially as they start to interact with front end applications that sit on top or work with the blockchain, it's going to cause some heartache there. So there, it's still not really bulletproof yet. But the one I'm working on is bulletproof. It's just the way it is because that's how I am. And uh, so uh, I will say this. I'm I'm. Uh, Working on some stealth project right now, and it's going to be what we'll just call like a front-end application that's going to interact with blockchains and stuff. But the identity infrastructure uh, for self-sovereign identity in this particular platform is going to be so strong 
that I often wonder, you know, uh, do we need a blockchain or not? So I really am, you know, toggling with all that. Do we need it or not? I can see a whole bunch of exercises where blockchain would be good. I also see some of its weaknesses. So there's, it's just so much. It's, I can't even wait to get up in the morning. My eyes open, I leap <laughs> out of bed and I'm just like, wow, there's so much going on. Can you um, can you kind of describe some of the applications you see that might interact with blockchain? Yeah, because I'm I'm creating a bunch myself. But yeah, I was on the phone yesterday with a guy. This might sound stupid, okay? But I'll give you one idea. I'll give you a few. One is this guy. He went. At, he's going after this market on inventory now. If you know, with COVID, remember all the supply chains broke down and they couldn't get figure anything out. All the car companies had to quit making cars because they couldn't figure out where the chips were and this and that. The hospitals couldn't find band aids and you know face masks. It was just a nightmare. The supply chain. Well, his little tool is he's found a way to really track inventory, which is not very sexy. And everybody thinks, watch this, everybody thinks they have an app to track inventory. Even SAP, Oracle, all the big guys, we all can track inventory. Oh, really? Well, if that's the case, why during COVID did the entire inventory supply chain shut down for the world? Matter of fact, they're still digging out of that mess. Okay. Uh, so, but this guy has an app and, um, and he has found a real simple way track inventories and sometimes there's a genius in simplicity right he's found a simple way to track inventories and easy to use one of the problems with inventory they're always messy and complicated and uh he found a simple way and he drives for just discussion purposes let's say a dollar um per box out of cost by doing his inventory better and he only charges a nickel so plus some setup fees and things like that. So, you know, so it doesn't matter if there's a hundred thousand boxes or a million boxes, this guy's getting a nickel box, turns into a lot of money, but the company's saving a dollar and it would be more money if it's a more higher priced product. But um, uh, I'm just using a dollar for example. And we're having a meeting next week because I asked him maybe for your particular case, would you like to also sit on top of a blockchain? Because you can have a second layer a point of truth that's there forever. So if someone ever says to you, uh, and keep in mind his customers, their board of directors are starting to pressure everyone to use blockchain. So I said, you don't have a blockchain. So why don't you let me move you to the best blockchain out there? And then you'll have your cool tool in uh, on the blockchain, but you'll be cleaning up everybody's inventory on the front end and you'll be on the blockchain on the back end there you have a meaningful use case that people can buy. He went, he did, he's having a 40% close rate. He talked to 10 customers, he's closing four of them. And, and that's in that area of this inventory control, which nobody even half the people don't even understand it, you know. And so uh, you know, then <clears throat> other use cases are gonna be, you know, recently in the United States, President Biden has mandated this ESG environmental, social, and governance. Mm -hmm. The rest of the world's ahead of the United States on the whole carbon tracking and the environment. But the United States is trying to catch up to everyone else. But it doesn't matter. They're at the table now. And that's supposed to be a $150 trillion industry. Well, I'm working 
uh, with some women-owned businesses that are trying to tackle the ESG market. And on the back end, they want it on the blockchain. And uh, it's very interesting because ESG, there's scope one, scope two, and scope three. And everybody's doing scope one and two because that's easy. Well, 90% of the carbon comes out of the supply chain. Right. And so um, so I'm building, Mr. Me, the supply chain guy, I'm building out the platform that will address all the nuances to these complex supply chains uh, so that this ESG business can go to customers and say, we're going to really be able to figure out your carbon footprint. And then we're going to store it on the blockchain. And the only reason they're going to store it on the blockchain is here in the States, the federal governments are they're mandating this, but they're also mandating for auditing purposes, the ability to go to a neutral site. Because if they go to General Motors, they're going to go, yeah, here's all of our spreadsheets and we know it's right, you know. But if they go to a blockchain, it's an unemotionally involved, it's parked over there, and they can pull data off of there. So if they're going after General Motors, they can pull it off there and look at it and go, yeah, they did do it. In fact, put everything there and so on and so forth. So we're not going to hit them with any fines or penalties, or we're going to reduce the amount of money we were going to penalize them. So that's kind of where the value add for a blockchain in that particular case. So you have these identity projects. Now you might not think much about identity. Banks, monies, cryptocurrencies, um, identity, NFTs, metaverse, hospital health records, all this stuff being moved to the United States Patent Office, moving stuff to a pod. The pod sits in a neutral location, surrounded by identity, um, backed up on blockchain, you know, and another thing I want to talk about, you may or may not have heard about um, chat GPT. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, the news. it's all over the place, right? You know, it's funny. Most people don't know this. There, what I call four levels of artificial intelligence and all known AI sits on level one, which is called machine learning. And one of the reasons AI has never been successful is when you're on the machine learning platform, it's very disciplined. The code says, you know, you can, you, Mr. AI, can only answer that question with A or B, but maybe the answer is C, but the software says A or B. That's why AI doesn't work. Uh, And then you have ANI, artificial narrow intelligence, AGI, artificial general intelligence, and ASI, artificial super intelligence. Okay. Well, ChatGPT is selling itself as level two artificial narrow intelligence. But when you look at them, they're really 1.5. So they're really like still layer one machine learning. They got a little more bandwidth. So they're, I call them 1.5. And Microsoft's trying to pump $10 billion into them because they want that level two. And they're going to tell all of us it's level two. Not me, I'm going to tell everyone it's level 1.5. Well, then you've got uh, some companies working on that level three. Nobody's touching that level four yet, artificial superintelligence. I have my eye on a company, a stealth AI startup, that is probably going to hit level three. They're going to be better than chat GPT. And when I put my complexity science into it to give that AI the ability to look at disparate systems 
to make really great decisions, they may attain a level four ASI. And then the question is, do you park that on blockchain or will that level four artificial intelligence eliminate the need for blockchain? So a lot going on there. Yeah, I, I mean, we could have you back again on one of these, but we're getting pretty short on time now. So yeah. I'm, well, I think I'm going to ask you a maybe a fun question and let John ask you a fun question. Um, mine is always going to be about food. And, and maybe, I don't know if you've traveled much, but me and John had a discussion recently where people like pineapple on pizza. So are you, a are you a pineapple on pizza person or are you a not a pineapple on pizza person? Well, I'm 100% not pineapple on <laughs> But I know two people that swear by it. No, it's just wrong. I had a, I had a boss of mine. I remember I picked his pizza up for him and I go, his name was Dan. I go, Dan, you got pineapple on it. I go, who would eat pineapple? He goes, oh, I love it. And then I know somebody else. Every time I get this person their pizza, so I might have pepperoni or green peppers or something and onions on mine. This person gets pineapple. So I know two people that swear about pineapple on pizza. And I am anti-pineapple on pizza. I'll tell you a little secret though. I love pizza so much that one day there was an extra slice of pizza with pineapple on it and I ate it and I kind of walked away and said, that's not bad. So I'm sticking to my guns. I don't like it, but I actually ate a piece of it and I kind of liked it. No, I did. Okay. John, you asked a question. I, I'm, I'm, I'm Jay, just annoyed Jay, now. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think we'll see each other at the end of February. So I might have to bring you a pineapple pizza from Portland. <laughs> Do I'll it. Bring one of the really good ones. Um, so uh, best uh, TV series or movie you've watched in the past, past 12 months, if you've had time, because it sounds like you're pretty darn busy. Yeah, I, I literally stopped watching um, uh, TV in, in its entirety, you know, and then well, I actually stopped watching TV about five years ago, but I used to hang on to cling to food shows. It would relax me uh, to watch Food yes. Network, you know, food shows. That's one of the few things that can bring it down for me a notch. But I stopped even that, right? So I don't watch any TV whatsoever. However, one of my kids is watching this show called The Sheldons. And it's guess it's on HBO, HBO Max or something. And, you know, I haven't watched TV. So I'm like crawled out of my cave. And I asked my daughter, what are you watching? And she says, it's a show called The Sheldons. And it's like a family, you know, it's like a, you know, some fun, nice, clean show kind of. And I started watching it and I thought, wow, this is a cool show. The Sheldons. It's a, it is really a cool show. It's called, I think it's called The Sheldons. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I heard of it. It's a spinoff of the Big Bang Theory. So, uh, oh, it is. Where you well, have a bunch of astrophysicists and, and scientists, and they're the nerds, and they have a, a lady that lives next door. That's uh, she is a bartender, I believe. But uh, yeah. there's a lot of play interaction on that. Oh well, yeah, because this um, one kid, the one child in Sheldon. Yeah, he's super genius. Show, he's a, like a little child scientist. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a spinoff of of that uh, Big Bang Theory. So that's a good one. Yeah, what's your show? Uh, if, if you uh, well, I mean the one we're watching right now, food. So I, I watch a lot of food TV, food food shows, and the one we're watching right now, and with my daughter and my wife as well, uh, is is called Nailed It or Failed It. So it's a baking series where they yeah. bring in these people who can't bake, 
and they like, hey, here's a cake. Uh, you've got 90 minutes to make this cake. And the results are just atrocious. So uh, yeah, it, it's fun to watch. So nailed it or failed it. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. a good one. Great. So, Phil, I really want to thank you for coming on. I mean, it's been great. Um, I mean, we'd love to have another conversation with you. Um, the hour flew past like incredibly quickly, but you had some really insightful stuff and some stuff that I'm really going to have to go away and, and think about and do some research on. Um, so I guess before we close, anything from you, John, to add? No, this was a great conversation. Uh, love that we were able to dive into blockchain for me it uh, kind of helped me understand that the future state of where we're going and and as well on uh, encryption so really Good. enjoyed it thank, thank you. you very much thank you all right Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSD Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.